0: in this episode of Classroom and Culture.
1: The first feeling was an overwhelming sense of near panic. How, how do we take a 40-year-old school that has never operated in a digital way, never operated in any kind of a remote way, and convert that in some sort of meaningful manner into teaching and learning?
0: Hi, you're listening to the Classroom and Culture Podcast from Epic Media Partners, where we go deep on all things faith, culture, creativity, tech, and innovation as they relate to education and learning. Please see the show notes for additional info and details discussed in today's podcast. Hey, it's Monroe. We've got a great show for you guys today. This episode is packed with great info for any of you educators or school leaders who may be emerging, as we all are, from the corona fog. And in regard to school strategy, you're asking, so what now? Our guest, Chuck Evans, is founder and senior partner at the consulting firm Better Schools, LLC. Better Schools specializes in the categories of strategic consulting, executive training, faculty development, placement services, and fundraising, among others, as they equip schools to be exceptional, competitive, and sustainable. Before founding Better Schools in 2011, Chuck worked in and around independent and parochial schools starting in the early 90s and has been head of school at multiple schools as well as dean of faculty and since 2006, as a consultant, he's worked with dozens of schools leading strategic and financial planning processes and major program expansion projects. Chuck has worked as a lobbyist in the Texas state legislature and is a certified mediator and is a founding board member of the Council on Educational Standards and Accountability, CESA. And lastly, Chuck is the adjunct instructor of higher education for the Department of Leadership, Policy and Organizations at Vanderbilt University Peabody College. And to find out more on Better Schools LLC or to send out a cry for help, go to betterschoolsllc.com. And incidentally, uh, we've got a couple of helpful resources here. If you want a great cross-reference episode for more information on CESA, you can check out our interview with Katie Weens, and that would be Classroom and Culture, episode number eight. Also, I want to let you guys know about a great blog from our esteemed host, Mike Zavada. The first article entitled, The Elephants in the Room, Five Things Keeping School Leaders Up at Night as We Endure COVID-19 School Classification closures can be found at epic2.com under the blog category. That's epic2.com in the blog category. Finally, there is a slight twist to this episode. Uh, we originally interviewed Chuck in mid-February, right before the corona crisis disruption. And so as we began to see light at the end of the tunnel, we thought we'd check back in for any newfound wisdom or insight Chuck may have for schools, having now gone through this experience himself. And that will be an addendum that can be found at the end of this interview. So stay tuned for that. Now, let's join our host, Mike Zavada, and I for our conversation with Chuck Evans. <laughs> Well, okay. So, uh, hey, guys, how are we doing?
2: Good. Good to be here. Thank you, Monroe. Chuck, it's uh, it's real pleasure. When I originally thought of this idea to have you and Grant do a uh, head-to-head kind of dialogue, as I started thinking about it more, it's even richer to have you on by yourself. And uh, then we got your CV. My goodness, you've done a lot. And uh, so it's great to have you on. Well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, we, uh, we'll we get knee-deep in the school business stuff, but because of what Monroe does, and uh, because we enjoy talking about music, we always start in with the an icebreaker, and I'll <laughs> let, let uh, Monroe lead you in on that.
0: Yeah, so Chuck, basically... Um Hey man, we want to get now right to the essence of what this conversation is really about, right? <laughs> um, uh, but no, what we love to do here, being a music industry guy, I always love to ask this question. So basically, when you are, you know, when you're going back and forth to conferences or to the interim assignments that you have and all these different things, just tell us what your go-to band, artist, playlist. It could be anybody. What did you grow up on? What is the music you gravitate towards?
1: Well, I grew up on DC 101 in Washington, DC, which yeah. was, um, <clears throat> I guess now it's a classic rock station or something. I don't know. But back then it was, <laughs> it was... um, you know, Scorpions and Van Halen and, <laughs> oh, and really? wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so I've got, but I've got two ways to answer the question. One is when I'm just cruising, like last, last week I went down to Houston from Austin and, uh, I, I drove that and, um, I just put my my device on shuffle and whatever comes up, comes up. So I'll get a little yeah. country and then I'll get some classic rock and then I'll get some hip hop and then I'll get some, some, uh, Johnny cash and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, we're big music fans. My wife and I, we, uh, we live in Austin. And so we've been here for almost 20 years. And so we just get access to a lot of really great, great music. So, um, in the last couple of years, we've seen Brandi Carlisle a couple of times. We've seen love, Jason Love,
0: Love Brandi Carlisle. The joke, uh, I think, is on every playlist I've got. I just love yeah. her. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And she's a great show, too. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Jason Isbell. Yep. Um, um, and then, you know, you got Texas people, people hang around Austin. Um, the other, when I was coming back from Houston, I uh, stopped off at a little, little Wayside Place and coming out, uh, guy, the uh, lead for Shiny Ribs was coming out. Oh, wow. So he's a, you know, Texas R&B yeah. soul guy. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's just there's just so much here. Um,
0: hey, and I know we'll get to it. Sorry, now we're going down a little bit of a rabbit trail. Did you by any chance get to see the Austin City Limits Brandy Carlisle show? Were you guys there for that?
1: Uh, we saw her at the festival. Okay. We, didn't we didn't see her in the theater, but we, we saw her at the festival uh, the same around the same time.
0: Wow, because I caught that um, Austin City Limits episode, and man, oh man, it was just so good. It really
1: good. Um, well, and they, they, you know, when they give somebody a full hour yeah. on that show, you know, yeah. you're know, you going to get a good one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, buddy, yeah, thank you. Let's dive in.
2: Well, speaking of a good one, uh, you're a good person to know in the school business, and I came across you when you helped uh, the school that I was at, Trinity Presbyterian, a few years back and um, just a down, world, in Montgomery. down in yeah. Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, this podcast is to help school leaders. And I know that you do that on a routine basis. And uh, we just thought bring your wisdom in, in the schools and then also shed light. Uh, I'll be frank with you. When we were talking at Epic headquarters, as I advised them on schools, we want to ask you the question of ultimately would classical schools, which is an area, one of your niche areas, would classical schools be interested in something like Epic that uses so much technology? And so from that, that discussion came out with a little debate whether or not um, we, we said, said we should get Chuck on the podcast to learn more about classical Christian schools because you were kind of at the center of that movement. And um, But that's a, that's a lot to unpack. First, I want to get into wisdom and eloquence. You wrote, wrote a book in 2006 with Robert Littlejohn, and uh, it's kind of a primer for classical Christian schools, at least in my book. Tell, tell us what prompted you to write the book and, and what came out of it.
1: Well, we were asked to write that book by Crossway, the publisher, um, essentially as a follow-up to Doug Wilson's book, um, uh, The Lost Tools of Learning which which was the, the the book that ignited the protestant modern classical christian movement um and and our our goal for that book though was to write one that was really focused more on institutions and on schools mm-hmm. and that had uh, more ideas about design and how um classical schooling could move from you know, sort of the homeschool startup school niche over more into the mainstream, um, and and you know compete in a sense with uh, at least at least a level of ideas with uh, other Christian schools, independent schools, um, and and so we we were writing that book. The audience was education uh, educational professionals, and and. I think that I think we hit that um, just based on the you know the regular feedback that we get. I mean, it's still in print uh, this many years later, so that that's gratifying. Um, and it hit, you know, there were some ideas in it having to do with design, having to do with what the classical curriculum looks like in a modern market environment that really resonated, and and so we 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 were just pleased to be able to make that contribution.
2: Well you it was uh, drafted, I guess to th- up leading up to 2006. So 2006 it's published. and then within a year or two, the recession hits and so every school has to f- refigure exactly what they're doing. And I, that's why I thought it was so poignant as I'm reading it. you really have to stop and ask, what are we doing and why are we doing it? We can't just slap the word Christian school on. Our school and, and have this big market, which was the case in the past, uh, I know from experience. So, since that book came out, and we've gone through a recession, and schools have gone through enrollment challenges. What do you think are the takeaways from a book like that?
1: Well, maybe not entirely from the book itself, Mm -hmm. but just in terms of the the overall environment of Christian schooling, uh, I think what we've learned is that we need to uh, organize ourselves better and and we need to not bank on a historical moment in which uh, Christian schooling just seemed easy. You just open a school and people came and, and you know, you charged a little bit of money and you could just kind of make it work for 20 or 25 or 30 or maybe <laughs> 50 years. Um, I, I think the, the big lesson that came out of the recession was that we have to um, design our institutions, our organizations, more like uh, businesses and, and to think more in terms of the market and not just what we want to do philosophically, but what parents need and what's, and what's good for kids.
2: Yeah. I think one of the great lessons in that book is in the admissions piece, as I was reading it and rereading it, you know, does a school have a sit down with the student and the parent and really flesh out the expectations on their side and the school side. And I think you guys do a great job of covering that. Um, a lot of, a lot of parents go into a Christian school environment thinking they're going to get one thing and getting told something totally different.
1: I call that uh, people buying what we're not selling. Uh Um, So uh, yeah, you know, school works best in any context, whether it's uh, an independent school, a parochial school, even a public school, if there are values aligned and there's a strong partnership based on, based on those values. And so the admissions process of, Getting to know a family, getting to know what their interests are, getting to know what their motivations are, um, getting to know what their children's motivations are, especially if they're secondary age, is is really important to a harmonious relationship and ultimately to um, you know the benefit that you want for for the student.
2: Absolutely. So you were putting a lot of that into practice as head of school at Regents, which. Seems like a fantastic school in the Austin area. And it seemed like Texas, the classical Christian school movement, really took off. Do you, do you have any reason for that specifically? It seemed like you were a bit at the epicenter there.
1: Well, to start with, we were good at football. Uh, that, <laughs> ma- that mattered. Um, but also, I think, you know, Texas culturally is a receptive State the receptive region to the kinds of traditional values that most classical Christian schools espouse and want to help families inculcate into their children's experience. Um, it's also, you know, a very big place. So <laughs> there are lots of cities and lots of people, and and you know, the economy is good too. So that that doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt at all.
2: Yeah, the the corridor. That sits between where you and I are today, San Antonio and, and Austin just seems like it's one of the fastest, fastest growing areas in the country. And uh, football is big here and, and Christian learning is big here. So it, we're uh, ripe for success with those schools. And there's a couple schools around me that are doing this well, especially the classical Christian model. Uh, I know that you were somewhat on the ground of the Geneva School of Bernie and uh, which is a wonderful school and an excelling. Why don't you en- encapsulate for us some of the elements of a great classical Christian school from your work at Regents and then also the work of the other schools that you work with?
1: Well, I'm, I surely answer that question differently now than I did 25 years ago when I first started working in classical schools in and, and leadership. I, I think that the schools that the classical schools that you see that have grown, that have matured, that have um, moved into a more competitive space with other uh, private schools or, or other high-performing public schools are, are schools that listen to their market and that are are attuned to the expectations that parents have for uh, the cultural environment of the school, uh, for things like college admission expectations for, um, you know, think things like football. I mean, it, it, doing, doing the things well that people really care about. Um, and that's not even philosophical. That's more of a, that's just sort of a, a practical consideration of what, it, what does it mean to, to, uh, have a great school that, that is enjoying a strong partnership with families. Um, on the more philosophical or curricular side, I would say that there are schools that have uh, found their own way uh, that, that have taken some classical principles that they picked up or that they, they modeled from another school or from a book like uh, the lost of learning wisdom and eloquence. And, and they found a way to express those ideas in ways that matter in their own school. And so they're not, Going around imitating other schools, they've created their own way. So you, you just mentioned mentioned uh, Geneva School of Bernie out there in the northwest uh, San Antonio suburbs. Um, there's a Geneva way, and and they're not doing classical. Christian education um, identically to any, anyone else. They're, they're listening to their community and, and they are finding the application of principles that matter most in the lives and the experience and, and in the future expectations uh, for, for students.
2: There's a lot written in classical Christian schools and, and Geneva definitely puts highlights this in truth, goodness and beauty. And there was a book out, maybe 2011, by Howard Gardner, a Harvard professor, about that. What do you think it is about truth, goodness, and beauty that resonates and uh, not only with our society, but with these schools and the parents that send their kids to these schools?
1: I think if you were to ask any parent, whether they're Christian or otherwise, if they would like their children to be educated in an environment where there's a there's a sincere pursuit of truth um, that is designed to help them to be good people. That is uh, surrounding them with um, elements of beauty that every parent almost would, would say, "Yeah, that sign me sign me up for that." I mean, they're, they're universal values. But I think, in particular, in classical schools, um, we've we've landed on the notion that. While truth and goodness and beauty might be universally attractive, um, they are in a sense in jeopardy because of the, the subjectivity that exists within the culture, and and that a school that is helping students to learn what truth is more objectively than subjectively, uh, whether there's a scriptural standard or whether there's a cultural a, a cultural historical standard, um, that resonates with with people. They want their kids to. To be seeking truth, but not just their own truth, but, but something that transcends them. And the same thing applies, you know, to the, the notion of goodness. Um, that there there are things that are that are good that we can learn, that we can that we can immerse ourselves in, that will have the effect of making us good people um, by objective standards. They 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 teach us habits. They teach us a certain kind of discipline, a certain kind of discernment. That um, that that then translates into a better life for for a person whether they're christian or or not and and i think to maybe a lesser extent culturally but but still to you know along the same lines the idea that there are objective standards if you will maybe not standards but there are there there are objective realizations of beauty that it's not just always in the eye of the beholder and that there are certain things that are truly beautiful. They're universally recognized as beautiful. And, and the more we're around those things and the more we know about those things, uh, the richer our lives are.
0: Okay, CNC audience, listen up. So maybe you haven't landed on that new remote learning solution. You know, that special platform that was intentionally built for teachers and students to operate within each school's unique culture, keeping everyone up to date and on the same page, you know, The one that will allow you to settle into whatever that new normal may be next year with the assurance that whatever disruptive event may occur, you and your students are prepared. You know, that platform. Well, look no further. Epic has created a learning platform complete with a robust content management system for schools and teachers that's connected to a mobile app to engage students in a way that's relevant to them and makes curriculum content come to life. At Epic, we not only have a platform that you can upload your existing curriculum to, we also offer a wide range of biblical worldview content and curriculum through dynamic and educationally sound lessons that parachute into your students' students' world and speak their language. Teachers and school leaders, don't miss out on the opportunity to supercharge your curriculum or your advisory sessions with EPIC. Contact the EPIC team at EPIC2.com. Or contact Tyler Young in our school's support area at epic 2com That's T-Y-Y-O-U-N-G at epic2.com. Or call this number, 833-GO-EPIC-2. That's 833-GO-EPIC-2. One more time, 833-GO-EPIC-2. I love this conversation. Um, And you know, Chuck, you actually, you may have explained the solution here just a a couple of minutes ago, but what I would love to know is. What are some examples of how a classical Christian model might exist in, in, a, in a modern school environment where kids, they can't navigate technology, they're in this crazy culture that's got all the things, you know, that Mike just mentioned and more, and you've got schools that are, they're trying to harness it all, but yet we know the strength of a classical education and what it could do. What How could that possibly look if they could coexist?
1: Well, I, th- I think we all find ways to coexist. It's just a matter of, you know, where the where the balances are and where the thresholds are. Cause there's no such thing as a non-technological environment or experience, almost sure. not at all anymore. Um, and, and every school, no matter how, how aggressively they pursue a techno- technological presence in their school, you know, with a one-to-one program or with online courses or, or, you know, whatever whatever those those opportunities are, they're, they're still struggling to find some sort of balance for the kids as well, and and there are there are schools that, from a philosophical standpoint, will limit access to technology in the educational program because they believe philosophically that that children learn better in in, in a less technologically infused environment. Um, they, they're, they're more attentive. They, they, they think more consistently, or at least, you know, they learn how to, um, think long and hard about things in ways that kids with, with a lot of access to technology might not, but that's a philosophical position more than it is, you know, just a, just a practical consideration. Um, and, and so I, that sort of gets back to what I was saying before about the classical schools that. I encounter that seem to be doing very well are schools that find their way on matters like technology, on matters like um, behavior, you know, behavioral standards, on matters like you know, curricular emphases, um, and and there's just not as much any more of a of a monolithic understanding of what a classical education should be experientially, at least.
0: Well, that's interesting. So you might argue that the values instilled by classical education could be the silver bullet. I mean, you know, it's like, okay, those are the very things that can train up a child in the way they should go and teach them to navigate and steward all these things. I
2: love it. Yeah, I think. uh, Go ahead, Chuck.
1: Well, I was just going to say that in a lot of classical schools, what you get that 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 adds to or, or aids that 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 goal of training up children in the way they should go, like you just quoted um, is a concentration of ideas and a concentration of focus on things that are, like we said, true and good and beautiful and old Mm. and, and hard and, and not just trendy and, and um, designed, you know, to design to, you know, help a kid functionally in the modern world rather than function, functionality is important, of course. Um, but, but also to help them philosophically and to, and to help them spiritually and to help them intellectually to navigate well.
0: Well, and, and in regard to things that are old, I've read that human nature is immutable, so it's very relevant.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and just, just to take that as an example, um, you know, the idea that human nature is immutable—that someone who lived four thousand years ago is exactly the same as someone who's living today—in their soul, in their nature, and in their motivations and affections—is not popular. I mean, the, right. our culture doesn't ju- just generally does not agree with that. Mm-hmm. So there, there is sort of an, an you know, a, a countercultural resistance to these um, pervasive. Call them evolutionary ideas, not not having to do in the biological sense or anything like that, or the geological sense, but having to do with the, the psychological and the and the you know the the nature of who people are and what they need.
2: Mm. Awesome. Well, your you work now with uh, since founding Better Schools LLC, and you work with the team over there. And uh, imagine you have seen over the last few years different trends. You're working with schools on and uh, working with boards on so walk us through what it looks like when a school calls to you for help and says hey we've got to work on our enrollment here walk us through what that looks like and how you help a school
1: i get a lot of calls from schools to help them with their marketing Mm -hmm. and i have learned over the years that um, usually what that means is we're, we're feeling insecure about our place in the market. We're feeling insecure. Maybe, you know, our, our, our numerical indicators are showing us that there's less interest in our school than there used to be. Um, we're, we're declining in enrollment or maybe we're stuck. You know, we, we, mm-hmm. we've been at 250 kids for the last 20 years and we don't know what to do. Um, but what i and what I found is that generally marketing is not the problem. Generally that there is something about the internal culture of the school that isn't connecting to the world around it. And, and, and that we've, we've focused our attention on families who are so ideologically aligned with us that, uh, and this is, this is very specific to classical schools, they were so ideologically aligned with who we were in our founding um, that we've run out of them. And, and and we're we're not finding ways to connect families who are maybe a little less ideologically aligned, um, and who have more practical considerations regarding the kind of education that they want their kids to, to have, um, and and we haven't we haven't flexed to those and and learned to figure out how we can be authentically ourselves but still relevant to more than that core of 100, 150 families that we kind of always have.
2: Wow. Wow. I guess the, the question is, when you're a board, you're worried about mission creep and you're worried yeah. about falling away, but the, yet you've got to meet a market. So how do you counsel them on how, how serious is that conversation about mission creep if they're trying to match the expectations of their market?
1: It's really important. And but there are two there are two there are two elements to it. One is how relevant are we? And 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 are we insisting on essentials that don't have to be essentials that we could change or modify or improve that wouldn't change our identity. Wouldn't it wouldn't change our, our core reason for being. But the second thing is to ask ourselves honestly, how well are we doing what we say we're doing? Are we really fulfilling expectations? And is the experience that families have in our school, does it, does it match what we've promoted as as that as as that educational experience? And and so often this conversation requires significant soul searching regarding the actual consistency and the predictability and the quality of the education that that we're actually providing to families.
2: Yeah. So something on on my mind that came up, uh, Christian schools often, if you had synonyms or if you had uh, the constituents, the stakeholders of a Christian school writing out what they really meant about a Christian school, a lot of times it becomes this safety net or this bubble, right? And I think you wrote a blog a few years, uh, a few months back about Uh, The school that you were at interim had addressing safety in light of shootings and things like that throughout the country that that are plaguing schools. And so, is something like safety that takes up parents' minds, how do you, as a board, as a head of school, go in and, and do that wisely, make sure that you alleviate fears without making that the driving force of education?
1: Well, number one, you have to acknowledge the concern, yes. And and, and you know, for, for parents to be afraid to send their children to school is just a it's a societal tragedy. Um, and and there are also a lot of families, Christian families, who are in Christian schools, not just Christian and classical schools, because I hear this all the time in in the more mainstream Christian schools that we work with, mm-hmm. um, who believe that because we're Christian schools, we could be more of a target um because society is trending more secular and maybe even more hostile to toward christian identity so in a governance and leadership standpoint from a governance and leadership standpoint number one you have to acknowledge the, the concern and even the fear um, and number two in order, in order, in order to get the focus back to what we want it to be on, which is the day-to-day teaching and learning and loving and all the things that are great about our schools, um, we have to do something about that fear. And and if it means that our cost of, of doing business changes because now we have to have, as I as I wrote in that blog, a guy with a gun on campus, then our cost of business changes, and and we have to adjust to that. Uh, and we can't just resist out of principle a, a, a social reality over against or because we don't want to acknowledge it or because it's inconvenient or because we'd, we'd rather that these parents not be so concerned. Right. I mean, it is what it is. And, and so we just have to, we have to alleviate that and then try to shift the focus to the things that, that are matter most.
2: Well, that's one of the things that makes being a head of school uh, for these types of schools very difficult. And you work with a lot of head of schools and you've been head of schools. What do you think are some of the key uh, attributes that heads of school need? And, and, and as also as we try to fill the gaps there's in the, in the area that I'm in, there's three prominent Christian schools and all of them are looking for or just did searches for heads of schools. What do you think, having been in the role, are the key attributes schools should be looking for in their head as far as leadership?
1: Well, I think those two have changed over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, You know, 20, 30 years ago, the the institutional leadership model of setting a course and charging up the hill and everybody just falling in line and going with you um, began to erode. And, and and so, I think effective school leaders need to need to ha- develop the ability if they don't have this innately to be collaborative. I mean, that's not in the absence of, of decisiveness, right? Because that's important as well. But but to give people a seat at the table, to be able to hear perspectives, um, to to learn from your own community and, and from your your own environment about things. Or, or learn things that you might know, might not know about your own school that you think that that you think you do. So there's an aspect of accessibility and and collaboration that I think is important uh, in this environment or in, in in this era of of leadership. Um, and but heads of school also more than they did in the past need to be on top of the. Business elements of their school, they need to be. They don't need to be. They don't need to be CPAs, but they need to be financially and strategically competent. They Need to be bringing good ideas and and long term vision to the table that will help the board, the volunteer leadership, the fiduciaries uh, to avoid short term, short sighted uh, decisions about things that are really important to. The life of the community, but also to the future of of the school institutionally. Um, so that's changed as well. Um, you still also need to be academically competent. You need to understand, you know, what what your school is trying to accomplish uh, educationally and and scholastically. But um, but you know, it, it's more and more about leading people and less and less about leading the. Um, leading the you know the, the the academic program or 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 leading the fundraising or you know leading the athletic elements of the school the more programmatic things that we like because that's what we learned when before we were heads of school but mm-hmm. you, you've got to expand you got to expand your
2: scope as somebody once said boards are looking for God on a good day out of the head of school that's still Definitely accurate that.
1: yeah it is. It is. Um, but there, there's one other element to that is that you've got to be self-aware
2: and Mm -hmm. you've got to
1: know what you're good at and what you're not good at. And you've got to be willing to put people in place around you who are better than you at things and, and have the, you know, the humility to lean on them and to, to lean on, on their intelligence, their experience, um, and not pretend that, you know, you have to you have to be the, the, the person in the room
2: with all of the answers every time to thine own self be true from a classical sense. Right. Yeah, well, that's yeah. that's excellent. Excellent. Well, um, we will put in the show notes a little bit about how schools can get in touch with you and and better schools. So the, the Vanderbilt program, if there's a school leader out there looking to join Peabody, I guess it's with Peabody. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's in the it's in the uh, Peabody College. It's a master's uh, master of ed- education program in independent school leadership. Um, it's in I want to say it's it's sixth cohort. I've, I've been teaching in that program for five years, um, and and it really has developed into a great program um, in spite of my my participation. Um, the it's very competitive now and. And the uh, the cohorts just get sharper and sharper. So I don't know. Yeah, they, uh, they, they might outpace me here pretty soon. <laughs> I'm not sure.
2: Well, what I love about that and the Klingenstein one at Columbia and the one I went through at the University of Hawaii is that it's specific to independent schools. So, um, you know, many folks get a master's in educational leadership and they're going through public schools and figuring out grants and. And IEPs and all those kind of things, whereas the independent school focus will talk about much what we we talked about on this podcast, which most academic folks who came through in the classroom don't have any idea about. And there's not really a program other than the one you're in and the ones I mentioned to really learn that. So that's fantastic.
1: And And I wish there were more. I think it would be a real service to the independent and the Christian school communities for more schools to take this on. I know the Gordon College is is in the process of. I don't know if it's it's actually running yet, but it's it's in it certainly it's in development. Uh, you have Hillsdale, um, which has uh, a good program up there. Um, that also does that, that too has sort of an independent, but also a classical school bend. But there. I agree with you. There aren't enough of them.
2: Are you tied in with the Van Lunen Center up? In yeah. in? Can you share a little bit about what they do? Cause I thought they were interesting as well.
1: Yeah. The Van Lunen Center is a, is a great program. It's, it's been around now. Um, I want to say 15 years um, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, they've just celebrated an, an anniversary. Uh, it's a, it's a fellowship for, uh, Christian heads of school from any de- virtually any denomination. So they have Catholic, Lutheran, non-denominational uh, heads of school who have been a head of school uh, for less than ten years, and and you join the, fel- the 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 fellowship. You're assigned to a faculty mentor in a in a small group, and then for the next year, you you go through a strategic process in your own schools. Some sort of strategic improvement process in your own school, with coaching from your faculty and collaboration with your with your small group colleagues, and they meet um, twice a year for a full week. Uh, the summer they, they kick off in Grand Rapids at Calvin College. That's where I encounter them mm-hmm. and and make my contribution in uh, strategic and financial planning for schools. Uh, and then they they reconvene, I, I believe, in January in Phoenix, um, altogether. It's a, it's a really dynamic program. And, and I, I have said more than once that, that m- many of the best Christian heads of school that I know, uh, are former Van and fellows. It, it, it really, it really ramps up, uh, a, a leader's competency and confidence.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. I hope that, uh, Leaders listening to this podcast will reach out for that, and uh, it's probably the deadline's probably passed for this summer. But uh, the next cohort, they should be looking to apply. Well, Monroe, do you have anything for the good of the order?
0: Hey, I will say just maybe for those listeners that might not check the show notes, um, could you could you give us um, just some contact how if somebody wants to reach out to you guys, Chuck? Uh, what would be the best yeah. way?
1: BetterSchoolsLLC.com dot com. Awesome. Uh, is our is our website. Uh, you can reach me directly at better at CTE at BetterSchoolsOnline uh, But every it, we're all reachable from from the website and uh, our our blogs, links to our blogs, and all the other normal interwebby stuff is there.
0: <laughs> That's great. In in a, in a classical education sort of way. Uh, there great. You. Hey, this has been great. Thanks, you guys, so much.
1: Well,
2: thanks for inviting me, Mike. All right. Take care, Chuck.
1: Thanks, you guys. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Now, please stay tuned for our addendum to this interview, which we recorded on Wednesday of last week, which was 4-15-20. In a short follow-up interview, Mike asked Chuck to reflect on the disruption the pandemic and shutdown has caused, and to share his thoughts on the effects this new normal will have on schools going forward. And it's really insightful. Let's join the conversation.
2: I want to start with, uh, well, you know, you're in an interesting role because you're a interim head but you've also had this great consulting practice so you have obviously first and foremost on your mind is this school that you're working with in dallas and um, and all the needs there then looking at the future of what schools will need so but i want to go back to about a month ago where you were and what was going through your mind when you realized that the school was probably going to, the brick and mortar was going to have to close down and you were going to have to convert to a new way of learning? Well, I, I would say the
1: first feeling was an overwhelming sense of near panic. How, how do we take a 40 year old school that has never operated in a digital way, never operated in any kind of a remote way, and convert that in some sort of meaningful manner into teaching and learning um so there was there there was obviously there there was a lot of you know kind of war room type planning two or three or four days straight all of us sitting around a very a, a long conference table and breathing on each other not not realizing you know what the what the risk was of us of us all being in that room together right no one got no one got sick thank, thankfully um, but just kind of you know having to think through a whole you know a whole new paradigm for school, and and I, I think I mentioned to you uh, earlier it, we had no idea how it was going to turn out once once we started rolling out, we knew it was going to be, be bumpy, but we had no idea what's we, how to anticipate you know some of the problems and and frankly I mean the skeptical side of my mind. Thought it it was going to be a complete disaster. Uh, At least that was, you know, a pretty high probability. Turned out it wasn't, and hasn't been. And and we've actually been able to um, put teaching and learning together in the various modes uh, that we've done um, in in a pretty meaningful way. Especially as compared to other models of school. Public schools are having a really hard time. Uh, They've got you know different population. They have kids who don't have. You know, compute internet access. They they have a lot. You know, they have learning differences and and special needs. They have so many problems that we don't have to have to deal with. And 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 I and I certainly you know feel for feel for them and for the professionals who are trying to make that happen. Um, But it was I I think that what's happened to us, and this is probably the same thing that's happened in a lot of places, is that we really went into this thinking, okay, we're going to do this for two weeks or three (laughs) weeks. And then we're all going to come back and it's going to be fine and And when I made the announcement on March thirtieth, just two weeks or so into this that we're not coming back this year folks it was it was a huge it was a huge emotional uh, had a huge emotional impact
2: so you've on, already done that though the state of Texas hasn't officially declared that
1: yeah yeah and that home. had partly to do with you know we were going to be done with school a little earlier than public schools anyway, mm-hmm. but just practically I couldn't envision how do we how do we reconvene with with any semblance of safety? forget about the logistical hassles
2: good gotcha, so
1: that's where we were, and uh, you know now we're we've spent the last month adjusting to our you know new normal or whatever you want to call it
2: so Obviously, technology has taken hold and, and great uh, liberal arts, Christian school liberal arts pedagogy possibly has taken hold. What what do you see as uh, how your teachers are working through this? And, and you mentioned the, the great things that you're seeing that are surprising of how they've been able to shift. Can you give a couple examples of areas where you saw that they were doing a really good job?
1: I think the the area where i've seen them doing the best job is adapting themselves to zoom or some google google classroom some uh, some sort of digital platform and and being able to connect personally with their kids you know that face to face interaction my favorite has been so far our pre k 3 mm-hmm. and they do they do uh, a daily zoom for about 15 20 minutes so all the 3 year olds get on they sing a song they, you know, read a story. Um, the parents, of course, have some activities provided for them to, to keep the littles busy at home. But none of those teachers would have ever, ever have imagined that, number one, this would be necessary, number two, that they could actually pull it off. Um, and then all the way up through the upper school, um, teachers are adapting and, and trying to find ways to conduct a, a classroom environment that is – at least modestly or moderately interactive without being complete chaos or without overburdening the kids and their families with all of these appointments that they have to they have to be on online.
2: Right. Yeah, I see that as the hard part and I've seen teachers trying to have multiple sections in the same Zoom call, which is hard. You know, if you teach yeah. five sections, let's say, and you yeah. Have eighty kids? You have, 40,
1: you have forty-five kids, or fifty kids, or right. you know, that's just yeah.
2: I think uh, what I'm seeing is the most effective are smaller optional groups together. Um, the the faculty are start saying they're getting the most fruits out of those, and, and they're enjoyable. But um, I want you to, and
1: I, and I would say this too, Mike. I mean, the bottom line is there are little little moments there are small moments that that are really worth celebrating. Yes. You know, where people are going out of their way and they're and they're finding new ways to do things. Overall though is a drag. I mean I, I think the overall mood when we're honest with ourselves is that this is not the way that we want to do school. It's not 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 only what, what we're not used to, but it this is not what we want even for the future. Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's that's a difficult combination of emotions for a lot of us to
2: to overcome. I hear you. well, you you mentioned the future. And so with every hurdle that we go through, we build capacity, we build a new mindset. I'm going to ask you to put your consultant hat on the better better schools uh, consulting, and think forward to what are you going to see in schools as far as improvements and change having gone through this hurdle
1: well in the near term i think if nothing else we know that next year is not going to be normal we're not going we're not going back to the way it was probably within the next year it's going to take a longer period of time than that in in order for us to get to a more stable economic you know environmental situation um, where schools might even consider reassembling as as a as a normal school, um, and it's going to vary all over the place. You know, Houston might be back in school in in August, and then out in October, and then back in January. I mean, it's just going to it's going to be this hodgepodge of of responses to a local situation next right. year. So we know that, but I, I think I've learned three things um, and. And, and I don't know how profound this is because maybe we're all maybe we're all learning the same things together but I do first thing is we're more capable than we thought we were in terms of providing a an interactive um, in an in interactive uh, teaching and learning environment that isn't face to face three dimensional so and and those capabilities are going to remain in place and they're going to find you know, a way forward. They're going to influence how we think about our school and our classrooms, and in the relationships that we have with students and parents over time. Not, ex- I can't predict how exactly it'll vary, but um, but I think that that's one thing that we've we've learned, and that's encouraging, right? I mean, we've we've had these we've had these uh, platforms, and we've had all of these these capabilities in many ways, just sort of lying dormant. Because we haven't needed them right and and now we're seeing seeing them spring to life, and the thirty year teacher is who who two years ago didn't know how to send an email is all of a sudden using Google classroom because she has to right, right? and or he um, second thing I think um, we're learning in all this is that we've really taken <laughs> this is almost is almost it feels a little bit silly to say. But we've taken the relationality and the, and the personal interactiveness of, of what, what we know as school really for granted. And all of a sudden, we're grieving the loss of the ability to be present with one another. And, and I think that will, too, in the future. I think it's, we're going to be more, more grateful and, and, yes. and for the opportunity to just be together. And that's gonna have fruit in relationships, gonna have fruit in discipleship in our schools, it's gonna have fruit probably in in the in the the intentionality with which we we organize and, and conduct our classrooms and our instruction. Wow. Uh, with the way that we conduct discipline, the way we interact with parents. I mean, there are all sorts of impacts that that a newfound sense of gratitude can have on in on the life, in the life of a school and a school community. And I think the third thing, a third thing that, that we've learned. Is that people will people are, are starting to see school differently than we have before. And I know we're really early early into this. It's only been a month for most schools or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but for 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 some people, digital learning will seem more accessible and maybe even more practical for their kids and their families and their lifestyles. Um, you know the, you, uh, you have families who, um, have adapted themselves. You know, it's a very, very small percentage of families, right. but there are families who just like to travel all the time, or they can travel all the time, and so they've adopted ad- adopted homeschooling, and they've adopted other sorts of you know online learning and that sort of thing. I think we'll see more people maybe gravitating in that direction, saying, you know, we we can we can construct a totally different lifestyle for our family and raising our kids by by using these things that we didn't know could be could be as well as 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 well as well used Um, but i think the other the flip side of that is that um, i think we're also going to see more families who are drawn toward the relationality of school and toward the 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 impact of the social dynamics and the in the in the face-to-face spiritual dynamics I mean, our baseball season and our track seasons got canceled. It, 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 the, the spring musical has it right. happened. Everything's ready to go. It's not going to happen. So those are also components of school that we've grown so accustomed to that when – one little thing goes wrong, we get irritated and we get frustrated, and, and you know we start picking on the coach or we start complaining to the athletic director or dialing up the fine arts director. I think we're going to be a lot of families are going to be more appreciative of of, of those things going forward, and and they're going to they'll be willing to invest more in that in that relational dynamic and
2: and the the social community of a school. Well, wow, that, that's great. Great guidance, great thoughts, and it's going to be interesting. I, I'm a historian by training, and I, this, this era is just blowing my mind. I love studying the Great Depression and to see the, the, the similarities between the Depression and what we're going through now is just is striking to me. But um, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, this is going to be a great addendum to what we've already talked about. With uh, the future schools and classical schools, and we um, really appreciate your time. Happy to
1: do it, and thanks for inviting me to be part of it.
0: If you thought today's episode was enlightening, please pass the word. The Classroom and Culture Show can be heard on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, to become a regular listener and receive additional info, please subscribe on your favorite platform today. That's Classroom and Culture from Epic Media Partners. Thanks.